Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Rohan shares the details on investment banking recruiting in the UK out of Oxford. We then explore how he ended up at Evercore, best practices for private equity recruiting, as well as his transition to a middle market firm in London. He then offers us a very detailed breakdown of various visas and greed card considerations when trying to move to the US for work since he recently navigated a transition of his own. Enjoy. Rohan, welcome to the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Good to chat. So it'd be great if you could just give the listeners a short summary of your bio. Sure. So I was born and raised in London in the United Kingdom. I studied at Oxford for um, three years doing economics and management. I really enjoyed that. Got the chance to run a range of different societies and get involved in a lot of different activities that I very much enjoyed. After spending three years at Oxford, I moved across to the investment banking industry. I worked at um, Evercore. I worked um, I worked at Evercore for um, a number a number of months, looking at a lot of different types of um, transactions. I started out by spending time covering chemicals and industrials, and then I moved to spend time in consumer, in sort of um, parts of technology and also parts of healthcare. Following doing that, I wanted to get more of an exposure to the whole investment process, lead the investment decision, and be really involved across the board um, as to how people think about buying businesses, growing them, and then successfully exiting them. So that led me into the world of private equity. So I started out at uh, a mid-market private equity uh, fund in in London, where I've been um, working for um, a number of um, number of years, looking at a range of different transactions, um, particularly spending time um, in spaces like the consumer space, um, particularly looking at some of our um, operational initiatives as well, and then looking at um, a broad range of initiatives um, there. And then um, in due course, I will be um, I'll be um, spending spending a lot more time now um, moving um, to the United States and looking at um, U.S. mid market private equity um, in the in the months that follow. Great. Yeah, we'll definitely want to dig into all the visa issues later on in the episode. So stay tuned for that if you're interested in hearing about uh, how Rohan uh, managed to to do that. So let's go all the way back to your time at actually even before Oxford. Was it? Did you know you were always going to go to Oxford? Were your parents uh, pushing you hard? What was it? What was the reason that you went to Oxford? Obviously, a great school. I think. I think you know everybody thinks of Oxford and think of Harry Potter and they think um, and they think of all of the weird and wonderful traditions that um, that we actually um, that that's around Oxford. It's it's a school where I think people are um, by definition um, very you working with and getting to spend time with some of the brightest 
but it is also a very fun school. So I enjoyed this sort of work hard, play hard culture that we had um, at Oxford. I enjoyed the fact that you could be very, very focused on one subject um, and really specialize in that. And there was this real focus on this debate style um, level of teaching. So every week you would prepare a tutorial essay and you discuss it with a leading expert in that field. And that kind of debate process that you did and understanding when you might want to change your view, being able to also stand up for your points, um, simulates a lot of the things that we do today in private equity um, in terms of the um, investment committee process. And it's um, that sort of style of teaching that I really liked. Um, and then my parents, much like many others, were of course super keen on the on the Oxford dream. But for me, you know, not not, not a lot of people from uh, my background had gone to Oxford before, and so I was lucky enough to get to go on a summer school the year before I applied to the university, and that really opened my eyes as to um, that I really liked the style of teaching there. I liked the I liked the city a lot, and that encouraged me to um, apply in the year that followed. That's great. Yeah, I mean. Looks like did you have to do really well in in high school, obviously, to even have a chance. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, I think. The, I'm curious, just because I don't know as much about the whole entry process in the U.S. I know it's super competitive for you know the whole scandal around uh, yeah. the the admission scandal around the U.S. You can see how competitive it is. Yeah, I think you know the 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 Oxbridge admissions process is is indeed hyper competitive. Um, you know, you're looking at um, single digit acceptance rates as well. I think you know, there is a expectation that people have. Um, amongst the um, highest academic standards. I think then sort of when, but even when you take the pool of applicants who are highly qualified academically, that's still a very large group. And so it then sort of becomes a matter of if you've done very well academically, how do you differentiate yourself in terms of reading outside of your high school syllabus, in terms of having interest beyond just sort of what's required for um, in the UK, it's your A-levels, the equivalent of SATs and, um, in, in the United States. How, um, did you, how did you do that? How did, you, did you have something outside school that was like you, you was your main differentiator? I think, you know, it, it's a matter of sort of picking a couple of, my, my subject was economics and management, sort of picking a couple of areas which interested you in that field. For me, it was a mix of behavioral economics. It was a bit of sort of um, area of, sort of theory of the firm and how firms work and, and optimize. Um, and then sort of doing reading, going to conferences, going to sort of particular extracurricular lectures that they had, joining a debating society that we set up um, about economics in our in our high school. So the, the admissions process in the UK, um, particularly for Oxbridge, is very focused on your academic interests in the subject compared to sort of the more holistic assessment that the US does for its liberal arts education. That's interesting. So, okay, so you're, you get to Oxford, immediately are you thinking, I want to be an investment banker, or what was going through your head, and <laughs> when, did, <laughs> when did that come on? Because it sounds like you went through Oxford pretty fast, so is three years typical? Yeah, three years is the standard for the yeah, UK. So, three years because usually, but usually it's followed up by a master's, right, oftentimes? Oftentimes, many candidates will do a master's, but it's pretty common in, in, in Europe to go for three years of um, undergrad and then to start out in, um, on, on our graduate scheme, i.e. the analyst programs. Um, right. So, so is in that sense, since there's only the three year, is it after your, after your first year in school, is that a time where you're competing for internships like in the U.S. or is it the second year really is the big year? So in the in the UK market, the process has shifted. Would you believe it's slightly earlier? So um, in your final year of high school, there are internship opportunities at the bulge bracket investment banks. So I remember I spent I spent time doing they're called inside days. So you spend a day or two at the banks. It's a generalist program. So sales and trading, investment banking, all of the middle office and back. They'll all present over the two days. 
but I remember spending time at JP Morgan. I remember spending time at HSBC. I remember spending time at sort of um, Morgan Stanley um, going to- But those are like, yeah, those are like two days. They're not full on internships. It's like two days you get exposed to the firm, look at how how they work and stuff like that, right? So was- Now, as I say, what's sort of particularly interesting about it though, is what, see what happened in sort of some of the years I was applying is that at the end of those two days, they would then fast track people for the first year internships, which um, effectively shifted the process up and sort of gave- So like you haven't even graduated high school or you just graduated high school, you haven't even gone to college and you're doing interviews for what, after your first year, for this summer, for after your first year? So not for the summer. So what effectively that pipeline's onto is the spring internships. Now it's not as like it really isn't a requirement at all to have done the high school piece to get the spring internships. But the spring internships, the spring weeks, as they call them here in um, here in the UK, are the first formal talent pipeline and the most common talent pipeline for the the more classic penultimate year um, summer internships. So those are done in your first year at Easter time. Applications will open on the first day of Freshers' Week, um, but literally even before sometimes. Um, some banks will open in September. Um, because different UK schools have freshers week at different points in time, and I remember, I remember very much that when I was um, when I was at Oxford, I was there. It was the first day of the of, of the new term, and it was the first day of freshers week. And you think of sort of people going out and enjoying themselves. And one of the big banks that was there were on the campus for the company presentation, and a good 30 percent of my course first years were already there <laughs> doing networking, and the process was sort of super super competitive so the um the competition is 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 continually fierce in the london market as it is in the states um and um you know you do the application process for your spring internships you can often do two or three spring internships because they're only a week or two long um and those spring internships at the end there's a formal assessment center and interview process to make offers for the penultimate year summer internships that this famous in the as, as in the u.s um, it's yeah. interesting how the uk there's these you know you have the the two day thing and then they go, then it kind of extends to a two week thing, but it's really not a full on inter it's not a, it's tough to evaluate someone in two weeks. It's kind of a joke. Whereas in the U S I feel like they do get a little bit of a feel over the summer where the summer analysts are yeah. but through the grinder a little bit more. <laughs> did you feel yeah. like, did you feel like you knew what to expect? I mean, so, so tell me about your specific um, spring weeks, what you did, what firms, if you, if you're willing to share that you worked at uh, for the spring weeks and then how that translates to what you do over the summer and whatnot. So yeah, I um I, I was a spring intern um at um at two um at two different um two different bulge bracket banks. Um I then what typically those spring spring internships entailed is listening to um shadowing for sort of the different divisions coming in and doing presentations, case studies. Um it's a, it's like a more detailed version of the high school thing. Um and it's more targeted because you can specify particular areas. It doesn't get down to, most banks don't go down to the level of IBD or sales and trading. They'll still group those together as just front office um, and they'll still be together for the spring week level. Some banks, um, for example, Goldman will, will just do investment banking so, and they'll be separate spring weeks. Um, but most banks typically do at this level still put front office with front office, middle office with middle office, and that's how they split their programs up when do you when do you actually list your preferences when you're applying for the spring weeks and does it hurt you to apply to apply to different uh spring weeks so can you say i'm interested in front office so let's say for goldman for example and you say i'm interested in ib and sales and trading spring week um or does that hurt you so for um for um for the spring weeks where they have division specific they make you apply to a division you apply to you okay. select the division that you'd like to 
And what about the ones that are just a little more broad? You just apply to that broad yeah, one. And apply they... to the front office spring week. Um, so I think, um, yeah. Exactly. And so is everyone at Oxford applying only to the front office spring weeks? No, there's a good, there's actually a pretty, pretty good mix. I think people in their first year genuinely, I mean, quite, quite understandably so. A lot, a lot of people don't know that they want to be front office M&A investment bankers from day one. I, I know I definitely didn't. Um, so what are the other op- options besides front office? What do they call it? So you can sort of apply to support functions. Um, you could apply, sometimes they have a dedicated one for technology. Um, they'll also often have sort of, um, they might do sort of, um, they might do a middle office one. Sometimes they get split in sort of operations um, as one entity. Um, they might have a sp- specific asset management one that happens quite a lot. Cool. So, and then, um, and then you also get, um, it's not just the investment banks running these um, first year internship programs. So what a lot of people who go on to become investment bankers do is, there's often sort of the big four running these, they do leadership academies. Um, that was um, very popular and lots of people applying onto them. The consulting firms are doing these discover programs where you're spending three, four days there. So your first year typically is spent getting a very broad range of different internship experience. Some people might spend time at Bloomberg, for example. Um, and this is, this, this is happening at all in the fall or it's, it's you're applying through the fall and then spring is when you're kind of going to each of these firms. And how do they do it when you're on camp? Like, don't you have classes then? How do they do it? So it's applying in the fall. It's done during the Easter vacation. Um, and um, some are done in the summer after your first year. That does exist. Um, but most of it takes place in the Easter vacation. Um, and it's just, you're going to do a very broad range of um, internships. And most of the assessment for the formal summer internship is on the last day or just a week after. That's when you do a full formal super day um, as your assessment, your proper assessment, coupled with your performance on the week counts. But it's the performance on the week put together with your super day performance that determines who gets um an offer to come back for the flagship um, eight to 10 week summer internship that the US obviously knows very well. Yeah, and so this is when you'll, these assessments are, are typically the numeric testing, the reasoning, that type of stuff uh, without a lot of these banks give, or is it like a higher view or both? Yeah, so for um, so for the super days following spring weeks, yeah. it's a full classic super day, meeting multiple people, technical interviews, fit interviews, um, brain teasers. Doesn't the UK market have more like these assessments that like these numerical tests and stuff as well? They get you to do those when you apply to the spring week. So if you're on the spring week, oh, okay. you, you've, you've already passed. passed. Okay, <laughs> great. So okay, so you get a full super day kind of in the spring, and this is this is kind of in the right after you finish classes. You have to go do this, and then you're stressed about that. And then, so right away, do you hear about whether you have the summer internship or not? Yep, it's pretty quick. Um, yeah, for the spring in spring assessment, we call them assessment centers. The couple of things which are uh, particular to the European market. You would have like a group exercise normally, um, which tests your how you interact with others. You may do a presentation, um, so like a mini case study, um, and then the rest is your classic multiple rounds of interviews. Normally, after your super day, you can hear the same day, you can hear the next day. It's pretty quick response time. Sometimes they might tell you they need two weeks to to benchmark, um, but most people hear very quickly after, and that will be an offer for the summer of your second year of college, um, so your penultimate year, not for the not for the immediate summer. There's very few first-year investment banking summer internships. Got it. So besides studying the WSO interview course for investment banking, what other ways are there to actually um, prepare for this? Is mock interviews or do you think is the best with your peers? What would yeah, you say? mock interviews is, 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 is a good way to prepare for the, for the super day that comes at the end of the spring week. Um, I think, you know, continuing to engage with more senior industry mentors, um, alumni. Yeah, there's a, there's a whole thing. Yeah, there's a whole thing with networking in the UK. Where I always get this question of like, is it, can, does it work? And to me, it's like relationships always work. Yes, it's more formal in the UK in terms of the, the recruiting 
like channels, you still have to go through a more formal recruiting channel. It's not like an MD is going to be like, oh yeah, get an interview for this, this, this guy, like it happens or gal, like it happens in the U S but um, yeah, correct me if I'm wrong. It still matters. Right. I think networking is critical. Um, I mean, this, the, the, the whole finance business is a relationship business. Um, and whilst we all need to be very good at our technical skills and, um, and, and, and in the investing world, how we think about um, investing, we are a relationship driven business. And, um, it matters as much as it does in the US in London. If if a managing director says, I recommend this person um, and they've had a they've had a conversation and they've actually do know that person and they do indeed recommend that person, then you know the person's written a good application, then they're gonna get they're, they're very likely they're gonna get an interview. Um, recommendations matter. People can see on your file for a particular bank who's who's recommended you, what their comments are. Um, people the HR are very um, receptive to that. And so in today's hyper-competitive markets, um, the way that I and peers used to think of it is when you're applying to an investment bank in London, you should have a recommendation or two at every bank you apply to. You should have people that are willing that you can that, that, that would be happy to support your application, that you can name on your application. And when HR calls them up and says, what do you think of this person? That they genuinely recommend you. And so I, I, I don't agree with the premise that networking is not important in London. Networking is critical. And um, in these are you getting thousands of applications in for twelve spots. Um, sometimes networking matters as much in London as it does in the U.S. In my opinion, it's yeah. not a, it's not a geographic thing. It's um, it's no, um, I agree. I just hear that sometimes. That yeah, well, it doesn't matter. It's harder in London. It, maybe it's harder. Um, tell me a little bit. So let's go back to your story. That you you mentioned something. You said you had a couple of spring weeks at two bulge brackets in your first year. Um, tell me a little bit about, did that translate into a summer internship for you mm -hmm. or what did you do over the summer? So it did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now you said that's pretty rare though for that first year. Yeah. So it, it, in, in the first year summer, um, I then went on to spend time doing other spring weeks in other industries. Um, so I spent, I spent time doing sort of leader, leadership academies with, um, with some of the big four firms. I spent time um, at, um, at Bloomberg learning about sort of how that system works and how that translates into into the finance world, um, I spent um, I spent some time looking at sort of investing, corporate finance, so really just exploring um, the broader um, the broader finance industry. Because as I said, it's very rare to actually intern in um, investment banking in your um, in your, your um, year. in your first year. So the offers you're getting are actually for after your second year. Yeah. Got it. So it's a full year, a year and several months out. You're getting offers for the summer. It sounds that sounds familiar. Yeah. Okay, so so that that leaves open that first summer to kind of do other things and explore, which is nice. Yeah, that's actually really nice. You, there's no pressure as well. Like a lot of people will, once they've signed their offer after their spring weeks, um, if they've converted them, um, they will just have fun for that first summer and then just enjoy it. Yeah, <laughs> there's yeah. no pressure to do an internship. A little break in the in the chaos of uh, yeah. the pressure. So you're coming into the second year. You know you have your your summer internship already lined up. Is this at a bulge bracket bank or is this at Evercore? No. So this is, um, this is at, um, this is at another elite, elite, elite boutique, um, where I did, um, where I was, um, where I was an intern. Um, okay. that was, um, that was my second year, um, summer internship. Um, it's pretty interesting. I think the, um, I think the, for me, I decided that, um, I decided, you know, the, the elite boutique marketplace was a bit of a broader experience. Um, it, um, it offered sort of broader, um, expertise in terms of your ability to work on strategic projects, um, particularly the elite boutique where I was working at, you worked on a lot of strategic projects as well as just pure 
um, M&A corporate finance. So it was a good hybrid between classic transaction work, but then also strategic reviews, corporate um, corporate sort of reviewing their strategies, um, as well as your sort of more classic sponsor workflow and sponsor type of transactions. Um, and it's important to note here that typically on your um, when you're in your second year, um, not whilst there's a good number of people coming from the spring week conversions to second year summers, recruiting directly for second year internships is very common and the norm. It's not the norm that everybody gets a spring week and converts that exact spring week. And that's where they end up. What's more common is that um, people just apply for second year internships. It's harder to apply for, um, it's harder to apply for full times with no internship experience, but it is, it's pretty, the most common entry route is, is this point where people at the start of their second year are applying for the summer internship. And so is that why you were applying and you didn't, you didn't have a, you actually did an independently boutique. You were still applying in your second year at the beginning to new firms. In my case, it was pretty, um, it was pretty, um, it was, it was a pretty unique thing that I, that, that I, that I got headhunted for this very interesting um, opportunity. It was, um, it was pretty much, um, it's pretty much, you know, it was a very unique chance to do a mix of strategy and also um, pure cool. M&A work stream, um, which is pretty differentiated. This was actually in the earlier days of the, um, of the Illy boutique market when it was still, growing um it was of course today is still growing massively but um it was when in london it was sort of starting to become what it was in the us um and london was sort of starting to elite boutiques were really showing up on a lot of deals um against the bulge brackets and were really gaining um a lot of prominence and traction in the in the london market um but there was also a lot of um a lot of my friends at the time were doing that first set of recruiting they didn't do the spring weeks um and many of them were very successful and um went on to various bulge bracket, elite boutique internships, and um, and then into the industry that way. Um, so this is the most common rush of recruiting. Um, again, all of the recruiting is taking place in August, September, October, November. It's pretty much most of the recruiting for second year summer internships. Sure. And these inter- having one of these internships is very important in breaking in. This is as it is in the US. It's it's very similar at this point. Yeah, I assume most of the most of the actual full time hires come out of this pool, right? Yeah. So. What is the offer rate for for most banks? And does it if the US typically bounces between sixty percent on kind of the low end up to you know a hundred percent at some banks? They always ninety five percent or something like that. Is it similar? Um, it depends on the institution. I think um, I think in London conversion rates are if it's a very established internship program, which is yeah. like Bulge Bracket Bank has been running this internship for fifteen years. There's very clear criteria. There's headcount for everyone. It's pretty identical to the US. It doesn't really differ very much at all. Um, Around eighty-ish percent, ninety percent. Okay. Mm-hmm. Newer programs, it depends. I mean, you know, some, and it's often the case that sometimes some European franchises, as the market is not, it's mature, of course, but it's nowhere near the level of maturity of the U.S. market. Um, there's newer firms come on the scene. Maybe they spend a few years getting their internship program set up and figuring out sort of, you know, whether they want, like, how they convert, whether they convert. Um, so you know, they're sort of. But, but for the firms that have been around for like 15, 20 years, um, it, it's the same as the US and 80 to 90% is a, is a sensible number. I heard that it was quite different last year during the coronavirus pandemic where things really changed quite a lot. Um, but I think um, in normal times, it would be what you said. Meaning the offer rates just dropped significantly? Depended on the banks. Some banks I Some had- Some banks had 100% because they were so busy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 100% conversion. And then some banks went for sort of, um, they dropped because of the market conditions. But um Again, much like the US and Europe, the market is is booming at the moment in a lot of sectors because deal appetite to transact is very, very high. Yeah. Okay. So tell me a little bit about uh, how you ended up at Evercore and then 
I'd love to just hear about um, what the experience was like there and the, the office there, that the size of the, the office there. I don't know too much about Evercore's presence in the UK. So I, yeah, I concluded that. Right, uh, let's, yeah, tell me about the internship. So the strategy kind of one, tell me about was, did you convert a full-time offer out of that or what, what was the kind of the, and then from there, did you leverage that? And I'd love to hear. Yeah. So um, um, it, was, it was an interesting, it was an interesting time. Um, so when I, um, when I was doing that um, that that elite um, that elite boutique internship um, there at the during the during the internship, and this is quite common in um, in London um, and in the and in the US actually, um, that during the internship there are effectively events um, and um, networking that happens from other firms that try and make full time offers to other people's interns. This of course is very well known in the US, and it's equally the same here in London. Um, Evercore um, within the um, within so before I actually got my um, formal um, decision on, on on that internship, came in with an offer. Evercore, of course, is a very established franchise. I thought it was a good mix of um, an elite boutique, um, where it was effectively um, the chance to still do a mix of um, strategy and M and A products, but just sort of more towards classic sponsor M and A with a little bit still of those corporate things, but not as much as what I was doing. Um, before, so it allowed me to still have that, but just tilt much more heavily towards um, full on, um, full on, full on M and A work. Um, and I think that's what attracted me. Coupled with the fact that um, you know, in London, Evercore was very well established. Um, even when I was joining them, it was very, very well known firm, very mm. well known to to all of the to all of the private equity market in in London. So you knew, you knew you were targeting private equity kind of before you even started full time in banking. I think the you were on Wall Street Oasis. You just drank the Kool Aid and said, <laughs> "I have to go private equity next." No, I think um, I think for me, you know, I think um, I think for me the the motivation actually at the time of when I joined um, investment banking was to stay long term. I actually thought that Evercore in London has a lot of analysts to associate converse. It's, it's the norm um, at Evercore in London, um, and that's what I was thinking at the time. But when I when I thought through it in retrospect. Um, I thought it just gave me more optionality um, because I think anybody who goes into their investment banking analyst one year telling you they know what they want to do with their life is lying because it's, I don't think I don't think anybody really does. Um, and I think that I just knew it gave me a lot of optionality. And so um, I think um, I think that that's that's sort of the attitude and mindset that I had going in. Um, You're still super young. You're still super young too. Yeah. So I started out my um, I started at Evercore. I did my training program in New York. Um, in those days, a lot of banks still train in New York. Now there's New York training from London is a, is a rare breed. Um, but um, there were still, there were quite a lot of us out there, um, us at Evercore and many of the other um, elite, boutique, elite boutiques were in New York for training. Um, we got to know the US class, which was great. And many um, are still friends of mine today. Um, and um, we got to, got to mix with the um, other banks, of course, who were training in New York. Goldman was out training London in New York as well, um, coupled with um, quite a few um, Obama was, um, a few of the others, um, a few of the others were as well. And so that was really enjoyable. Um, and so, um, came back to London, um, started out, um, in our chemicals and in, um, chemicals and industrials coverage, covering the U S and London from London. We covered the global coverage out of, out of London for that team. That team had just done the Dow to Dow DuPont transaction. Um, and that was sort of very early stages of Evercore's, um, now very, um, very successful chemicals franchise. Um, and then I moved across to, um, our um, coverage. We have a team in team in London, which is uh, called our generalist M and A group, um, and areas where we, you know, there was a lot of um, sector expertise um, in that team. I spent a lot of time looking at healthcare, consumer, some tech. Um, so this team sort of interfaced a lot with 
um, Evercore's other teams um, in um, sector teams in, in London, in the US. Um, and then I also looked at a lot of um, public to private deals. So US companies looking to do public takeovers in the UK. And sounds, it sounds crazy busy to see a year and a half. You're only there for a year and a half. How many deals did you do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Were you, did you sleep at all or, uh, you know, no, I think, um, you know, I think um, within the, within the year and a half, um, we had a few aborted deals. We had, well, we had one situation, which, um, which we got done, which was in the, um, which was in the, um, I would call it sort of, um, a mix of sort of, um, sort of chemicals that um, people are using um, in the apparel space. Um, so that process was very intense because we, there's so many different tracks to it and lots of different, um, lots of different angles um, and took up a long time. Um, but um, it was a very interesting um, process to see different sort of products within the, um, within the investment banking and corporate finance toolkit um, and sort of how you run the process for each of them. Um, I worked with a sponsor there, which is really interesting. Um, and then that got me interested in private equity. Um, you know, thinking about having the chance to work with a sponsor for a long time, getting to know them, seeing how they would evaluate different decisions. Um, and then, you know, being able, you know, I, I should have realized that I was enjoying, I enjoyed the generalist approach at that point in time. I sort of wanted to still stay generalist. I didn't want to specialize yet. Um, and that sort of drew me to um, the mid-market private equity firm that, um, that, I, that I joined in London. Um, to what it was, a, it was an yeah. Do you mind giving the listeners a little bit of a background and just sort of how UK private equity, how how it's similar and different to the US, or how from what you know? I mean, I know the US well. I know the UK a little bit as well, but I'd love to just give the listeners a little primer. So effectively, the US, the UK rather, doesn't have on and off cycle. Um, it's different to the US market. There are still what I would call on cycle periods where it's busier um, in recruiting for entry level. Those typically tend to be just after summer. Um, and then also um, just in uh, early in the new year, um, so that those are tend to be the busiest periods. Um, but there's no formal on and off cycle. Um, recruiting doesn't wrap up in like four days. It, it's quite it's quite different. Um, and the processes in Europe at the entry level are longer. You're not. It's not unusual to therefore see seven eight rounds of interviews. It's not unusual to see a full weekend for a case study. Firms are looking for a lot of the programs in Europe are not two years. Um, it is a it is career track type program from day one. Um, it's pretty common um, for people why, to- Why do you think there's that difference? I think- Smaller smaller office, offices or? Smaller teams, um, not a focus on MBAs. It's not really a, not really a very common thing in, in the European market. And yeah, smaller, smaller teams and people really need to have a long-term fit. And typically a lot of people, um, you know, a lot of the recruiting is taking place through um, a lot of different headhunters that similar. Um, process is fairly similar. You can see, expect your standard um, blank LBO modeling test, your paper LBOs, um, your fit questions, your deal walkthroughs, your um, your personality test, um, your case studies. Um, but I think a, a lot a more detailed and longer case studies is very common in um, in Europe, often taking an entire weekend um, as part of the recruitment process. And you typically will meet almost everyone in the recruitment process um, because they just have more time to run a longer process. What's the best way to differentiate yourself in, in this recruiting process for private equity? I know everyone can probably do the LBO modeling at some point, right? I think the real differentiator is candidates who understand what it means to run a private equity process, what it means to buy a business, and what we actually do from start to finish. Um, actually understanding when I say I have this idea, how does that idea go to a fully financed SPA signed and um, understanding you know, what drives due diligence, so a real end-to-end understanding of the deal so I think where people, where the star candidates differentiate themselves is on business third judgment, investment judgment, and understanding this notion of risk and reward 
that it's fine sometimes to buy a riskier business if we think that we can get paid for it and we're actually going to make um, higher returns to compensate for that and thinking about mitigants, thinking about, you know, sort of taking their investment judgment and, you know, being able to say, well, this deal might give me two times my money, but it's a business with a high degree of revenue visibility. It's a high degree of, um, you know, there's a high long-term contracts with customers. It generates a lot of cash. So that might be a two times only, but it might be incredibly downside protected. And it's pretty unlikely I'm going to lose money. So the risk reward might be in the in a good place for me to transact on that as part of a broader portfolio. And, you know, there might be this very fast growing business where we're not sure the growth's going to continue. But if the big growth does continue, we're going to make 10 times our money. And so we might be willing to take that level of risk because if we get it right, the return is 10 times and we think of it in a portfolio sense. And so people who are really just thinking like that investor mindset, um, you know, that sort of style, but it's not easy to, to talk through and, you know, it takes a long time. Let's keep going on the specifics around um, your, your story. So did you, when did you, you said it's very common for analysts to associate promote. So you said you got interested in private equity. Was it, was it as easy as just calling up some recruiters and saying, Hey, I'm actually interested in private equity. Or was it something where you had been fostering kind of your network and you kind of started letting them know, yeah. And specifically when you start, once that's kicked off for you, was it something where you were talking to two or three funds at a time and did you have multiple offers or was it something that, like you said, it's, it can be seven, eight rounds. It can take months, um, if not half a year. Tell me about what, what the whole kind of process happened with you. Yeah. So you need to, you would need, you would be speaking to the recruiters often when you're, when you're leaving college. So uh, much like in the States, often they're keen to get to know you then um, before you even start your training. Um, is that that's because you went to Oxford though, right? I think it's a, I think to be honest, um, I think people are, I think school is important in Europe. People do care a lot about school, mm-hmm. but I think for people in well-known banks um, and elite boutiques, um, the recruiters are going to want to call them within their life before they've even hit the desk. It's very common. Um, and they're just going to want to get to know them and maintaining a good personal rapport with a broad range of recruiters is very important um, for the entry-level private equity process. They're speaking to so many people having those dialogues and relationships early on is very, is very, is very much a key differentiator. And so um, I would say that. How do you make them? How do you make them like you? (laughs) I think, I think staying relevant and staying on their radar is important. I think um, constantly checking in on opportunities, checking in on the state of the markets. um, And often what, 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 what a lot of people don't do, which is, um, is, um, is an oversight sometimes is, they'll often have a search and you might not be relevant at all. You might not fit the profile. Let's say I need a, I don't know, I need a German speaker and I don't speak German, but people who really like, like foster that relationship will say, I'm not a German speaker, but my friend is a German speaker. Can I make an introduction? And that willingness to just be helpful to them fosters a level of goodwill. That's actually, it, it, it gets repaid um, later on in the, in the recruiting process because, you know, there's actually a genuine two way relationship. Um, often the, 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 and also other things. So for example, um, what some, I often do a lot of work with um, a range of diversity organizations to promote diversity within the private equity. Um, and um, when, I, when I was at Evercore in the investment banking space, and I often made introductions to, to some of the people on our, on our teams and, you know, they, they love being part of these programs and got them involved in some of my philanthropic endeavors and really built the relationship that way. such that when it, when the time, when the time came, um, I actually wasn't sort of ready to kick off the full process. Um, this was pretty early on in the process. Um, I got um, an inbound um, on a particular opportunity and went through that process and liked the team and um, thought it was a good place to build some investing skills in the in a private equity um, buyout context. 
and so join the firm. Um, that's not the typical way it works. Um, I would say I was one of the first people to leave my analyst class. Um, typically, people wait two years um, and 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 do a full process with like multiple firms and end up in multiple offers. So like the average tenure for a UK analyst is probably over to two years. Months. 18 to 24, whereas sometimes in the US, they're gone in 12 months. Yeah. <laughs> or they have their offer within like a month. Um, at, not this past year. I mean, on cycle still has yet to kick off. So I think we're going to have a crazy, um, crazy summer. But um, tell me a little bit about, so, okay, so the whole process, you left er- relatively early compared to your rest of your anal- analyst class. How big was the analyst class? And by the end of it, how many people do you think were left by the end of the two years? Yeah, so 15, um, 50, I think I would say like probably about mid-teens or so, as to how yeah. many people we started with slightly bigger actually when you include all of the european offices this is just europe if you yeah, include yeah. it because us class is huge, huge um, yeah. and um i think after a couple of years out there are still some people there um there's a there's a handful of people there um i think um as i said evercore does a good job in um in 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 encouraging people to stay longer um and a lot of people do actually form careers there um i enjoyed my time a lot um the culture was great um i got to work with some really great people i got a lot of responsibility um, and if I didn't want to move to investing, I would have stayed. Um, I think that's a pretty rare comment to make in a U.S. context. But I think um, I think um, you know a lot of the elite boutiques in London spend a lot of time thinking carefully through culture, thinking about sort of a level of exposure. Um, and a lot of people do stay. Um, I think it's not people don't sort of go into the industry with as much of the mindset of two years now. And, and that's because the contracts aren't actually two years. They're they're for life. And if you perform, you can stay there as as long as as long as you want and as long as you're progressing um through the career. Um so but I think um, yeah. I, I kinda wanna move it because I've it's I can't believe this much time has passed, but um I want to talk about when I leave some time to talk a little bit about the visa yeah. visa status, how you so you worked at um this mid market private equity fund in in London for three years, got a ton of deal experience, you know, did did great work there. Tell me a little bit about your desire to come to the U.S. and then how you even approached it. I know there's a lot of visa considerations. Um, there's a lot of inter, uh, there's a lot of students outside the U.S. listening to this. Recommendations, a little primer on just visas in general would be awesome. Yeah, sure. So um, you know, for me, it was a mix of um, it was a mix of a personal decision. Um, I, I think that um, for a range of personal reasons, being in the U.S. was better. Um, I think that there's a lot of opportunity out there um, for uh, in the in in the investing market, um, particularly in the growth focused element um, of the investing market. Um, and the mid market in the U.S. is huge. Um, the market is multiple times larger the size of of the U.K. Um, and the style of doing business and the way people think about deals is very much in line with how I thought about deals and investing and um, a lot of sort of my networks and and in terms of sourcing. And um, you know, I found a firm and a, and a team that I really liked, and 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 that I could see myself at um, very very long term, um, and sort of in a in a career track type role. So all the right things came together. I think a primer on um, on how you can practically make that happen um, from um, from a from an immigration standpoint. I think most common um, way that people um, are in the are in the U.S. Um, it seems to be is that a lot of people apply for. A H-1B visa, which is um, typically done in a lottery. Um, well, it's done in a lottery setup for most people, um, not all. Um, and I think the um, and I think the um, there's obviously for people who've done MBAs, there's a, another lottery that they can play again um, to to improve their improve their chances. Um, and effectively, if people are um, granted that visa, um, they're able to if they're doing a skilled occupation job, etc., and meet all the various requirements that the U.S. government sets out. Um, 
they are able to stay in the US um, for a number of years and um, and work on that visa. And um, I think you're able to renew it a bit. Um, but it's not. Um, it's of course it's not a permanent resident visa. It doesn't. It's not. It's not a green card. Um, effectively. Um, a lot of employers are nervous about doing that because it's lottery indeed. Um, and um, that typically works quite well in a graduate context because you need, you need to start from like October and um, you, you know, if you're a student, there's a, there's um, some relief you can get between your student one expiring and this starting um, potentially. But for people who are coming in on like, just for like experienced tires, it doesn't really, it's a bit of a risk for the firm to take. Um, you can only play the lottery, I think in, in, in Easter um, and you won't be able to start until October. So it's a long time is going to pass before between getting the offer and before you leave now. And it's only about a third, or granted? Yeah, I don't know what the exact odds are, but it's not, You're it's not, not north of 50%. It's not north of 50%. So it's a pretty big risk for firms to take to, to, play, to, to play it. Um, but uh, some firms do, of course, and some people So tell me about how you approached this, um, this transition to the U.S. And, and how you thought about it and how you got the firm comfortable and all that. Yeah, so carrying on through the other types of visas, the most common way people transfer to the US is on an L1 visa um, as well. So that's an intercompany transfer. So if you've worked for your company outside of the US for more than a year, people will typically transfer. And this is the way that a lot of people transition across. Again, this ties you to the specific employer. So you must continue to work for the same employer. Um, as um, And, you know, I think that... Um, I think that um, I think that that for me. Once you're in the U.S., you have to keep going. You, if you tr you can't ever take another job in the U.S. Hmm. No, see that's that's um, that's a that's a that's an that's an L1 visa, which works pretty well if people are uh, are sort of on a career track and and will stay there a long time. But of course, there are advantages to um, having permanent residency in terms of actually being able to set up a life in the U.S. and really sort of and and grow and um, and develop there. Um, and I think the therefore you end up with the um, the other, so there's a couple of other routes um, for people who are investing in the U.S. So investing, like setting up businesses, etc. There are a couple of investor visas that are available. Um, I don't, I don't know a ton about them, so I won't go into a ton of detail on them. Um, but for certain um, countries that the U.S. has treaties with, of which the U.K. is one, there are a category of visas for investors um, and people who work for. Um, companies which are owned by people from these nations. Um, you can look up what's called an E1 or an E2 um, treaty visa, which goes down that. Those are not green cards. Again, those are, um, are non-immigrant visas. Um, and then you get the other um, category, um, which, is, which, um, which, uh, which, which is interesting, which is called an O1 visa. This is a visa for extraordinary talent. Um, it's a non-immigrant visa. Um, it does allow you to petition onto a green card um, from that visa category. Um, the, the sort of associated green card is an EB1A visa, which is an extraordinary talent green card. Um, and effectively for these two categories, um, um, for which business is a subcategory, which you can apply on this, um, there are also other versions of this for the arts, for motion pictures, for creatives, et cetera. Yeah. Um, yeah. But for the EB1A for business, um, as it pertains to, 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 the world of, um, to the world of finance, um, the U.S. government would require that you meet um, meet um, three, at least three, of the eight criteria for the O-1A um, non-immigrant visa. Those criteria are, firstly, um, your work as a judge of others, um, and that is um, judging in um, in a range of different contexts. Perhaps you were judging a startup competition. Perhaps you were judging deals on the invest on, on an investment committee. Perhaps you were judging um, others through through being involved in a recruitment process. Um, so, where you've taken a really key judging role. Um, second is to do with your um, memberships in selective organizations where you have to be picked to join, which are well known in your field, um, where the experts in your field um, 
where the experts in your field play. The third is um, your ability to to have lesser known awards. Um, so um, awards within your country, um, within your field, um, that are that 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 can be demonstrated. Um, you then have um, you know the um, your criteria of being in a critical or an essential capacity for a distinguished organization. So you've got to take a little really lead role and be essential to to what you're doing. Um, there are criteria for um, press and, and um, articles about you in your field and your achievements in the field. There's also another c- criteria, which is where you've published press about things in the field um, in, in contexts which are well-known. You said well three out of eight, right? Three minimum, three out of eight, hopefully not all eight out of eight. Yeah, three, <laughs> That's pretty three tough. Of, three out of eight. Um, you basically have to be an insane resume builder. You have to, yeah, I mean, there's, um, there's, there's, there's two more, actually. One is original contributions in the field, and then finally high salary versus relative to others in your field. Got so it, you, have to be, you have to be one of the best experts in your field. Um, and, of course, you know, the, the field needs to be defined as to what your field actually is. Um, you, know, you need to actually define where specifically your expertise is within, um, but you need to have a, a top tier. You need to be within the very best um, of your field across the board and be able to demonstrate that to um, the immigration authorities and, and U.S. government. And the criteria for the green card are slightly different in terms of language, similar sorts of evidence to use. Of course, given that the green card is permanent residency, the bar is um, indeed higher um, that you must you must demonstrate. Um, but this O one, this O one B, if you get that, you can it can turn into like a green card. So if you get an O one A visa, um, you are allowed to um, you're allowed to work for up to three years, um, renewable indefinitely, um, with the um, employer um, that you that that sponsored you. Um, and then if you get an uh, and then then using a similar set of evidence with different wording, with different sort of, um, different sort of, the criteria language is slightly different, but the substance is rather similar. Um, you apply for an EB1A green card, um, which goes through a similar process, but with a higher bar. And upon being granted that, you would have, uh, you would have, a, and going through the various immigration requirements that follow it, you would have um, a green card and permanent residence within the United States. Um, so I think you need to get your employer comfortable that number one that yeah how did you do that that was going to be my question how did you even get this person ever this these employer this employer comfortable because it sounds like it's a ton of work you just say hey I'll do it all don't worry about it no I think a couple of things first you need to you need to be clear that you know you are that you are keen in a long term career with them you know this is them really sticking um what's the word putting putting a lot of effort in for you and you need to need to convince convince them and be sure that you're doing this because you want a long-term career with them, that you can see yourself as a future partner within their firm. And that there is really that, that, that you're now ready and you know what you want in your career to be, um, to be, to be that long-term and that you've spent enough time out of school. You can't apply for this if you're one year out of school, right? You need to have a number of years of work experience to actually be, um, to demonstrate that you are an expert in your field and that you are at the top of it. Um, and that you're continuing to do well and that it's been sustained, you know. Um, now, the alternative, of course, to, if you don't want to have to meet the three out of eight criteria, you need a major international award like a Nobel Prize or, um, or an Oscar. So that's an alternative to, to fulfilling the three out of eight criteria. Just get the Oscar, start your acting career. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I think, um, I, think the, um, I think that's the first step. The second step is um, your, your employer will typically... Um, at the very end of their process, hire immigration counsel um, to assess you to see whether they believe from their expertise in the field that you are likely to meet the requirements for the non-immigrant visa to enter the U.S. and then the green card to um, to establish permanent residency and be able to um, to to stay in the U.S. long term. Um, so they'll they'll typically do an assessment um, where they will speak to you, go through your achievements, and 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 form a view which they'll give to your employers to given what you're able to offer whether you indeed are one of those experts and whether you are 
um, for, the, uh, for the purposes of the U.S. government's assessment process, whether you meet that top tier expertise and um, whether you can whether you can qualify and whether they think they'll be able to successfully get through all of the different stages of the process. Um, and um, that's the employer needs to get comfortable with that through those through their immigration counsel before they'll actually extend an offer. Um, and then once you have been extended an offer and if you accept that offer, you will work closely with the immigration counsel to prepare the relevant documents of which there are a lot. It's very, um, it's very comprehensive. Um, so the materials that need to be prepared for both petitions um, um, we're, we're closely with the legal team and with your network um, to, to prepare for, to prove. Uh, sounds like a lot of work uh, to make it. Um, but yeah, if you can get the company to buy in, is, is there any way to know whether a company's open to this besides just applying to roles and, and asking or how, like at what stage in the application process? Like you're obviously building a network, you're talking to investors in Europe, but then like, when do you phone it? Hey, is there an opportunity for me? Are they all of a sudden like, well, I don't know what the status, like what's the, what's the, response from these people initially but you need to educate a lot of the market and um, this is relatively it's you know there are people in private equity who have done this um but um i think and um i think the um i think that um but the market needs to be educated that on this route um i think that it's obviously not a well it's not a super like lots and lots of people aren't doing it because the criteria are indeed stringent um you need to to demonstrate to the u.s authorities that you meet the criteria um but i think the um but I think when you think about sort of, we think about the criteria. When you think about being able to successfully, um, successfully meet them, if you do think you do that, um, the recruiters um, in the United States will ask for, you know, at the start when, when before they start any process, they'll ask what's your visa status, and you've got to get them comfortable that there is this visa. I think I qualify. Here's why I qualify, and um, would the firm be open to it? And so typically, this conversation, in terms of this conversation in principle, is had at the start. In terms of the detailed assessment, hiring immigration. How do you get the recruiters? Yeah, but how do you get the recruiters not just be like, oh, it's too much of a pain. I'm not going to bother the, the firm. Because I, I would think that's a huge impediment to actually getting in front of these. I, I guess maybe because you're not just relying on the recruiters to get, you're going directly to the firms as well. No, I mean, in my in my, in my case, I had um, I had a really great relationship with the U.S. recruiters. Um, but I think you need to have excellent relationships with the recruiters and then the firm in due course um, as you progress the process to, to get them comfortable. Um, but it is a lot of work um, and um, very unique, very interesting story. I love it. I love it. It's like a, you know, a ton of work, but it can be done. Yeah. Uh, which is great to hear. So tell me a little bit about, uh, I guess, before we wrap up, anything else you'd like to share kind of about your story about anything, any kind of work, final words of wisdom to the, to the audience? So I think maybe worth pointing out that, you know, now, now, of course, that I'm, I, 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 you know, now that, now that you're sort of um, doing the, um, doing, doing the sort of um, transition process, um, I think that you know one of the key things that's important is once you spent a bit of time in in private equity and you then start to gain expertise and I think it's like it's pretty natural um, as soon as you're familiar with private equity and obviously you've got your experience in the space from your investment banking days working with sponsor clients pretty important to get into um, a subsector specialty relatively earlier on so you actually become an expert at something rather than no expert at, and just do everything and so you know for me in that, in my case that was. Um, that was in consumer in the consumer sector, um, and also within um, you know tech enabled and business services, um, and then you know and also at least from my perspective, you know I sort of spend a lot of time specializing on operations and how you grow a business, um, and you know that's um, that's where I continue to play a lot in the states. And so I think getting that specialty and expertise and becoming really really excellent at something early on is is important, um, so that people kind of view you in the firm as the go to person on something, um, and um, I think that's important. 
And I would say the importance of mentorship. Um, I've been very fortunate to have worked with and gotten to know some really great mentors that um, invested in me, spent time getting to know me and continuing to grow and develop um, and develop uh, my, um, my career. Um, but I think, you know, having that mentorship is absolutely critical um, for successful career in um, on the buy side in um, in private equity. So I would say that that is something that um, people should really seek to identify early on who's going to be their mentors um, and then who's also going to be those sponsors. Um, and they're not the same thing. I think it's important to know that um, whilst they could be the same person, it's very important to any firm to have that person that will um, stand up for you and, 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 and fight your corner. Um, and it might be multiple people, hopefully it is. Right. No, that's great. I think that's great words of wisdom. You know, networking isn't just something that you do to break into the industry um, or to go and move within the industry. It's a, it's a mindset because if you think about this industry in the long term, it's a relationship game. Um, people who realize that early and build their expertise and, and demonstrate that expertise to others um, in terms of being able to stay connected, help people out. Um, you know, that is, that is ultimately why deals get done, why founders believe that you're their preferred equity partner and why people um, and, why, and why people go on to be very successful investment professionals. All the best people in the industry are just excellent at, at, at they can do all the quantitative skills. They can run a deal. They can they can grow a business, but they can but people just think they're great people to work with, and and that spreads when people think you're great to work with. Yeah. Hey, you've got a lot of references, and hey, you know management teams and founders want to sell to you and and want to partner with you. Um, and you know then and then and then you also end up motivating teams that want to that want to engage with you and 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 they're inspired and. Um, that ability to learn, but also be mentored and, and have great networks is, is what differentiates the very best in the industry, in my perspective. Rohan, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate your story. Thanks so much, Patrick. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.